Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Pearl Jam is one of the most documented bands of the last 30 years. Even before the internet came along, fans were obsessed about cataloging everything the band did. Tour schedules, set lists, bootleg recordings, news stories. And Pearl Jam encouraged this too. A big part of their long-lasting appeal has been this relationship, this covenant that they've had with their fans about collecting and archiving stuff. The band understands this because they're collectors too. All you have to do is look at the 20th anniversary box set for the 10 album that came out in 2009. It came with things like a replica of Eddie's notebook and a cassette designed to be just like the one Eddie used to audition for the band back in 1990. The band's stories have been told so many times, but you get the sense that the history of Pearl Jam is so deep that there might still be a few more things to learn about them. Imagine what it might be like for a fan to dig through all kinds of Pearl Jam ephemera to see what unusual things could be found there. Well, that's been done, and I'm here to report back. This is the Ongoing History of New Music Podcast with Alan Cross. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross. There is a tremendous depth to the Pearl Jam story. Everything that's known about the band has been put out there. Or has it? I thought I'd create a challenge to come up with 10 things about the band, 10 unusual things that most people have never heard. Now, let me stop you right there, Pearl Jam obsessives. You're like deadheads and Beatles freaks. I know there's nothing I can get by you, so you get a pass on this test. We'll just take it as read that you know all this stuff already. Everybody else, though, I'm not so sure. Let's find out. Point one. Country legend Merle Haggard made it possible for Pearl Jam to exist in the first place. And for reference, Merle Haggard sounds like this. And I'm proud to be an Okie from Muskogee. A place where even squares can have a ball. Here's how the connection works. Stone Gossard, Jeff Amont, and Mike McCready were looking to form a new band. Stone gave a cassette of instrumental demos to his buddy Jack Irons, a guy who would later drum for both Pearl Jam and the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Jack played basketball in San Diego with this surfer dude who worked in a local alternative club and sang for a band called Bad Radio. See what you can do with this music, he said. Write some lyrics and do some singing or something. So, digging deep into his love for The Who, Eddie came up with a mini opera called Mama-san, 
which essentially told his life story. And it came in three parts, Alive, Once, and Footsteps. Then he needed to dub his singing over top of the music from Stone's demo cassette. Now, Eddie had this old Tascam four-track home recorder, but he didn't have any blank tapes. So looking around his apartment, he found a copy of Merle Haggard's greatest hits on cassette. He decided to sacrifice Merle's music by taping his Mama Son opera material over Merle. And that was the tape he sent up to Seattle. And that was the thing that got him the gig with Pearl Jam. So thank you, Merle. We appreciate your sacrifice. And here's how that taped over Merle Haggard cassette sounded once Eddie was finished with it. It's a live from the Mama Son demos. That's the original demo of Alive that Eddie sent up from San Diego to Seattle to audition for a band that would become Pearl Jam. The entire 12 and a half minutes of audio on this cassette was taped over a pre-recorded copy of Merle Haggard's greatest hits. All right, unusual or at least lesser known Pearl Jam fact number two. How many people know that there were two videos for Jeremy? Well, there are. The first video was made by Chris Caffaro, a photographer friend of Eddie's. The band gave Chris a choice. If you could make a video from any song on the album, which would it be? And he chose Jeremy. Epic, Pearl Jam's record label, was not keen on the idea. They didn't think Jeremy had any potential whatsoever as a single. But Chris knew it was a great song, so he took out a loan and sold off a bunch of his stuff, including half his guitar collection, to finance it. Filming took place in a warehouse in Los Angeles on October 4th, 1991. In this version, the character of Jeremy has a much more subtle presence. You don't see much of a classroom, and you barely notice the gun. We do see the entire band, who are lit from above. Unfortunately for Chris, this video was never officially released. Instead, Epic had a change of heart and commissioned a new video in June 1992, directed by Mark Pellington, which went on to win a bunch of awards. It was also much more graphic, with blood spatters and a suicide scene that was eventually censored. The whole experience really soured Pearl Jam on the idea of doing music videos, so they didn't release another one until 1998. Bonus points if you remember what video broke the moratorium. It was Do the Evolution from the Yield album, and even then it was a completely animated video. But back to Jeremy. The inspiration for the song was Jeremy Dell, a kid who shot himself in front of his class with a 357 Magnum in Richard, Texas on January 8, 1991. In 1996, there was another school shooting in Moses Lake, Washington that left three people dead. And part of the defense case for the shooter, a guy named Barry Lucatus, was that he was influenced by the Mark Pellington video for Jeremy. Jeremy, a song for which there are two videos. There's the one that everybody knows, and the other self-financed one that came before, and that can be found online. Unusual, or at least lesser-known, Pearl Jam fact number three. The song Better Man dates back to Eddie's old San Diego band called Bad Radio, and it's even older than that. Eddie wrote it when he was still in high school. Pearl Jam recorded it for the Versus album, but it didn't make the cut, mainly because the band didn't like it and didn't exactly give it their best shot. Even Eddie confesses to sabotaging it a bit. 
Bottom line was that neither Eddie nor the band didn't think much of the song, and they were prepared to give the song away to Greenpeace so they could include it on a benefit record. But then producer Brendan O'Brien had other ideas. He thought the song was a hit, but Pearl Jam hated the whole idea of producing hits. So immediately their biases kicked in. They vetoed the idea. And to underscore the point, Eddie offered the song to Chrissy Hind of the Pretenders. But for some reason, she didn't show up to the meeting, and O'Brien insisted that the song be given another shot. So Pearl Jam recorded the song two more times, and a composite was taken for Vitalogy. And it turned out to be the hit that Pearl Jam had been dreading. Now, rather than play the version that we all know, let's go back to the old bad radio recording. It's a bit rough, but historically, it's just way too much fun not to play it. Eddie Vedder and his old pre-Pearl Jam band, Bad Radio. That's a rough recording of Better Man from 1989. Of course, that would end up becoming a much bigger hit for Pearl Jam about five years later. More of our list of unusual facts about Pearl Jam, including another big song that the band originally hated. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The name of this episode is 10 Unusual Things About Pearl Jam, the real inside baseball stuff that only the hardest of the hardcore know about. We just finished with the story of Better Man, a song that Pearl Jam despised because it was too much of an obvious hit. Here's another example of the band almost shooting themselves in the foot. This is unusual, or at least lesser-known, Pearl Jam fact number four. The Versus album was recorded at a posh studio in the San Francisco area called The Site. They had the money, and their record company insisted that they record in a proper rock star location. This, as you might expect, did not sit well with Eddie. He was very much in the strongest part of his anti-rock star phase, and the place caused a serious case of writer's block. So Eddie often slept in his truck or drove the 30 miles to San Francisco where he'd hang out with homeless people talking to them about their thoughts and experiences. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, the rest of the band worked on the music. Eddie would come by every once in a while and work on five or six songs at a time. One song that gave everybody the most trouble is Rearview Mirror. It was the first song for Pearl Jam that Eddie had ever written on guitar. The sessions were pretty tense, and the tension Eddie felt about this whole rock star thing spilled over to the rest of the band. He hated that studio. He wanted out, and he wanted to put everything, you know, in his rearview mirror. I'm going to play it for you now. See if you can pick up on the tension in the room, and at the very end, listen for drummer Dave Abruzzese to throw his sticks against the wall in frustration. Drummer Dave Abersees was under a lot of pressure to get his part right, which is why he had a mini freakout at the end, which, by the way, also included punching through the head of his snare drum and then marching outside and throwing the snare drum over a cliff. All right, let's move to Vitalogy for unusual or at least lesser-known Pearl Jam fact number five. Pearl Jam was into the vinyl revival 14 years before it actually started. 
1994, vinyl was on its way to extinction. Everybody was buying CDs and looking towards new digital formats like DAT and DCC and Minidisc. Records? Forget that. It was old technology. It was useless. But Pearl Jam begged to differ. To underscore their love of old-school vinyl, they released the Vitalogy album on vinyl two weeks before the CD version. They also released it on cassette at the same time. Demand was so high for new Pearl Jam material that the vinyl edition sold 34,000 copies in its first week of release. That was pretty astonishing for the time. And that was the record for first week sales of a vinyl record until Jack White came along with Lazzarato in 2014, selling 40,000 copies in one week. And keep in mind, too, that Jack has his own record label on a record pressing plant just down the street. And by the time that record came out, the vinyl revival had been underway since 2008. Pearl Jam may have thought that they were fighting against the future with the vinyl release of Vitalogy, but they were actually predicting it. It's fitting, then, that the first single and second song on Vitalogy is all about vinyl. It's called Spin the Black Circle. Unusual, or at least lesser-known, Pearl Jam fact number six has to do with a persistent stalker problem for Eddie. He doesn't like to talk about it, but this person sounded like a real piece of work. In April 1996, we started hearing about the death threats this guy was sending to Eddie. For some reason, this guy blames Eddie for the breakup of his relationship with his girlfriend. They split because she was apparently obsessed with Eddie and Pearl Jam. And this freak had threatened to kill Eddie in front of a hundred witnesses in revenge. His house had to be patrolled by security guards 24 hours a day. And that was just one situation. There was also the case of a mentally unbalanced woman who believed that Eddie was not only Jesus, yeah, but was the father of her two sons after he raped her. And to get his attention, she almost killed herself by ramming into Eddie's house with her car. For a while, Eddie had to stay at the house of his friend Matt Lucan, the former bass player for Mudhoney and the Melvins. This explains the song Lucan on the No Code album. Pearl Jam with a song about their friend Matt Lucan, a guy who gave Eddie shelter when he was being pursued by a couple of stalkers. Unusual, or at least lesser-known, Pearl Jam fact number seven. The band's relationship with Neil Young goes back to before they were even called Pearl Jam. Now, if you've studied the band, you'll have heard the myth of the band's name. Eddie's fictional grandmother Pearl and her special jam made of peyote buttons. Completely fabricated as a joke, so let's not even go there. The truth is that the band was in a bind after they were told they couldn't use their initial choice for a name, which was, of course, Mookie Blaylock, after the point guard for the New Jersey Nets. It wasn't that Mookie had a problem with the band using his name, but his lawyers did. If there were two Mookie Blaylocks, there was bound to be all kinds of trademark confusion. For example, if Mookie the basketball player got an endorsement deal with Nike, there would be a stupid amount of paperwork required to make sure that no one got things mixed up with the band and they got all those free sneakers. Anyway, it was just smart business advice for the band to find a new name. So they did. Everybody seemed to like the name Pearl, a word that came up while brainstorming at a Seattle restaurant, but Pearl didn't seem like it was enough. Then they found themselves in New York on business involving their brand new major label record deal. Whilst there, 
they went to a Neil Young concert and were very impressed by his band's long, inspired, instrumental jams. And that was it. Pearl Jam. Eddie later embellished that by saying that jams featuring competing creative visions, the irritant, can come together into something great, like a pearl. It's a metaphor, right? Whatever. Anyway, here's something from Neil. I wish I was the full moon shining off a Camaro's We have covered seven unusual, or at least lesser-known, Pearl Jam facts, and we have three more to go. Stand by. I call this show unusual, or at least lesser-known, facts about Pearl Jam. Point number eight has to do with turtles. Actually, one sea turtle in particular named Backspacer. In 2009, Pearl Jam sponsored a turtle in a race from the Gulf of St. Lawrence to her nesting grounds in the Caribbean. This was part of a study carried out by Conservation International and the National Geographic Society. Backspacer was up against turtles sponsored by the Chili Peppers and R.E.M., and they had names like Wawa Bear, Night Swimmer, which was R.E.M.'s entry, and of course, Sea Biscuit. Yeah, I know. In the end, Backspacer was the winner cheered across the finish line by an American Olympic swimmer after crossing 2,442 miles from Canada to the Caribbean. The whole process raised awareness for the plight of leatherback turtles, it promoted Pearl Jam's eco-friendly agenda, and it helped publicize Pearl Jam's 2009 album called, not so coincidentally, Backspacer. Pearl Jam and the Fixer from the Backspacer album, which was also the name of their leatherback turtle. Let's move on to unusual, or at least lesser-known, Pearl Jam fact number nine. Can you name the Hollywood movie featuring a cameo appearance by a pre-fame Eddie, Stone, and Jeff? It was Singles, the Cameron Crowe movie, set in pre-Grunge Explosion Seattle, filmed in 1991 and released in 1992. Matt Dillon plays this dopey singer named Cliff Poncier. His band is called Citizen Dick, and Eddie, Stone, and Jeff were cast as the rest of the band. Their longest appearances run just over a minute and features all of them sitting around the table reading a review of their just-released record. Doghouse should be like six or seven. They want, they want me to come out. But so do I. I mean, they're just friends. Doghouse as an encore, man. Jesus. I can't start off What's the point of like making those people like clap so we come out again? You don't get it, Steve. I totally agree with Cliff. Hey, check this out, man. A review of our record. Whoa, snap. Read it out loud, man. Once again, when the shirtless Cliff Ponsier starts to sing. Wait a minute, man. I don't want to hear anything negative. Other than that, he was ably backed by Stone and Jeff and drummer Eddie Vedder. I mean, that's good. That's a, that's a good review. A compliment for us is a compliment for you. No, man. Just negative energy just makes me stronger. We will not retreat. This band is unstoppable. This weekend, we rock Portland. Yeah! <laughs> by the time the movie was released in 1992, Pearl Jam was huge. So it was great timing for the producers and the studio. They also contributed two songs to the soundtrack. The first was Breath, and the second one was this, State of Love and Trust. State of love and trust is a 
Pearl Jam with State of Love and Trust, one of their contributions to the soundtrack of the 1992 movie Singles, along with a cameo appearance by three of them. We're finally up to unusual or at least lesser known Pearl Jam fact number 10, and I'm going to warn you that this final one is really, 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 really gross. This dates back to the 1992 Lollapalooza tour. Along with Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, Ministry, Ice Cube, Lush, the Jesus and Mary Chain, and the Red Hot Chili Peppers, the tour featured a modern freak show called the Jim Rose Circus Sideshow. One of the featured performers was Matt the Tube Crowley. His shtick was, um, well, let, let, let's just go to the video. Oh, Matt, I'm intrigued. What is it that you do? Well, I take this tubing, I stick it in my nose, it goes all the way to my stomach. Into this big container, I have uh, 40 ounces of beer, ketchup, chocolate, Maalox. We pump the beer into my stomach, and then uh, we pull it back out and let members of the audience drink the bile beer. Oh, delicious. Now, however did you come up with this silly idea? Well, when I was a pharmacist, I knew a nurse who uh, had gotten a hold of a bunch of stomach pumps, gastric lavage units, and he gave me one, and, and I took it seriously. I, I was very uh, curious about it, and I had to try it, and I, and I like doing it. Well, curiosity killed the cat. Let's hope it didn't kill you. Get up there and show us your stuff. A big hand for Matt, the tube, Crowley! Matt the tube is forcing seven feet of tubing into his stomach via the nose. This is gavage. All Irish, pay careful attention. This is how you force feet hunger strikers. We filled it full of beer. We filled it full of chocolate, ketchup, all different types of things. We're pumping it into his stomach. After it settles in with the juices of his stomach, we've got a special brew here in Seattle. It's called Bile Beer. It's certainly very colorful. We called for a volunteer from the audience to sample this bile beer, and we got Seattle's finest, Eddie Vedder from Pearl Jam. But the climax of the show was Mr. Lifto. Uh, just, just be glad you can't see this. What Eddie drank was this weird green color, and this whole thing turned into a challenge between Eddie, Chris Cornell of Soundgarden, and Al Jorgensen of Ministry. Who could drink the most bile beer? Chris Cornell tried and retched. Al Jorgensen did it two days in a row, but Eddie was there every single night. And in the end, he claims to have drunk two quarts more than anyone. Why did he do it? Just looking for attention, he said. All right, this was an odd episode, but like I said, with a history as deep and rich as we have with Pearl Jam, there was bound to be things that have been forgotten, gone unnoticed, ignored, or maybe even suppressed. But this stuff is often the most fun to hear about, right? Technical production is by Rob Johnston, and help came from Matt the Intern. We'll talk to you next time. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts.